the book of Habakkuk chapter 2. I'm going to read one verse, verse 14, and before I read that verse, I'm going to ask you to stand with me out of honor and respect for the Lord and His Word, His revelation to us, and we'll ask His blessing upon us. Let's pray. Now, blessed Father, we ask for your blessing as we read this word this morning, Habakkuk, that we seek to understand it, and you would grant us understanding, you would grant us discernment, you would grant us a, Lord, a, 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 an apprehension of its truth, and Lord, the, your blessing would be the that understanding, the understanding would be the stamp of the, your blessing upon us. And that that blessing would unfold into, uh, Lord, the right obedience that each of us would be called to. So, Lord, come and draw our minds and our hearts to your blessed word. Draw us together as a body of Christians and draw our families together as we come to sit at your feet and learn more. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Now, beloved, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 14. And the prophet writes, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And thus ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, brothers and sisters, we continue our study of this small book with a very powerful and deep and I think needed message. The verse that I read in your hearing this morning, I believe, encapsulates the heart of chapter 2. And that's what I'm going to seek to demonstrate over the next 45 minutes or so. As the prophet writes, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In one aspect, this is exactly what Habakkuk is doing. He's revealing to us, or at least God has revealed to him, how he is filling the earth with the knowledge of God, with Himself. Now there are two ways God does this, or chooses to do this. There is the general revelation of God. And we, we hit on this last week, if you remember, in the book of Romans. Paul writes in that glorious gospel presentation that from heaven the wrath of God is revealed... Against what, brothers and sisters? All unrighteousness. Paul goes on to tell us that God has revealed Himself to every person, to everyone, but yet not everyone lives in harmony with that revelation. Some deny that revelation and live in unrighteousness by suppressing that revelation or suppressing that truth, choosing to live as an atheist or as an agnostic or choosing to live as a very compromised professor of God. That's the general revelation. And even 
Paul says that even in this general scheme of the earth, because God made it, God manages it, God watches over it, it's God who created it, it is certainly a, a reflection of himself. Everything that's created is a reflection of the creator, right? There are certain inherent laws that come within that creation and we see that wickedness is always rewarded by catastrophe. Wickedness is always rewarded with catastrophe. Because we live, we do not live in an evolutionary, amoral world. We live in a very divinely orchestrated, created, planned out world by a moral God. And when, when evil is promoted, it's judged. Now I want you to think about anybody that you can look at, any person, any family, any nation... Those who exalt wickedness, they die in ignominy, in ignoble death. They die, the word I'm looking for, it skips my mind. They die in the sense, and then the Bible says they perish and nobody even remembers their name. This is vital because... There's a general revelation that all men live under. All men live under. Why do you think worship covers the earth? Anthropologists can't answer the question. Social studies can't answer the question on if we evolved, how can there be the worship of God or gods in all the earth? There's similarity. Where does the blood sacrifices come from? Where's all the similarities that men get when they worship God recognizing? Interesting, look, look, the interesting thread here, and I can't dwell on this point, is that God demands atonement. That there is somehow an inherent offense that we have to God. Right? I mean, have you noticed that? Why do they shed blood? To appease God. Where did that come from? Well, we know where it came from. The Bible reveals to us and tells us. Now, they don't know because they don't have the general, they don't have the special revelation, the particular revelation. But we who have the Bible, we know where it comes from. It comes from the very beginning of time where God even sacrificed animals and gave skins to Adam and Eve because of their sin. Animals had to, the innocent victims had to die for the atonement of sin. So there's the general revelation, but brothers and sisters, there are those who live under the special revelation of God. Those who have been told particularly how things are, how things will be, and that's where Habakkuk falls, that's where we fall. Because we have been told. Who's the one, who's bringing Nebuchadnezzar to power? God is. Remember chapter 1. As we, as, we, as we follow the train of thought in Habakkuk, as we all bring ourselves under this knowledge of God that's going to cover the sea, Habakkuk goes to God, he brings these crimes to God, these injustices and cruelties that God's people are are guilty of 
among themselves. And God says, Habakkuk, I'm, I'm doing an awesome, horrible work here. I'm going to judge my people for their cruelties and injustices. And I'm going to raise up Nebuchadnezzar, this fierce wolf-like warrior, and I'm going to raise him up. He's going to be a power monger. He's going to be immoral. And he's going to come in and he's going to just gather the nations that are around him like fish in a net. But where did Nebuchadnezzar get this power? From God. Where did he get his intellectual military prowess from the one who makes the mind and the heart, right? We get into chapter 2, and now Habakkuk says, listen, look, look there with me, and I, I want you to see this. He says, I will stand on the rampart, or my guard post, to station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. And how I may reply when reproved. We see there in the very first verse of chapter 2, there seems to be this retirement, not passively, but this active retirement of Habakkuk to do what? Learn from the Lord. I'm going to hear what he has to say to me. I'm going to learn. Well, you've got verse 14. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now look at verse 20. Look how the chapter encapsulate the idea itself. But the Lord is in His temple. Let all the earth be silent before Him. Why is, why is there this phrase of let the earth be silent? Because there's instruction taking place. Because God is instructing the earth. Habakkuk retires in, in this silence to do what? To learn. He doesn't have anything to say. When, when we're sitting in, under the discipleship of the Lord, we're here to what? Learn from Him. We're here to sit back in silence and hear the words of the Lord that we might be instructed and filled with knowledge and understanding so that we may go out and be wise. Now, even the whole earth should sit in silence when they see the great kings of the earth fall. When they see the great empires of the earth crumble as God had predicted they would. Let the whole earth be quiet and know that I am the Lord. There is no other. And we can go to the book of Daniel and we can read these particular statements. Chapter 2, the kingdoms and the powers of the earth. And, and, the, and in Daniel, he speaks of this kingdom that's going to be brought to this earth, right? The rock that comes and grows into this glorious mountain that overtakes all the other kingdoms of the, of the world. And so we see the cosmic battle of the kingdoms of this earth, right? We know that, the, that the, the, the empires of this earth rail against God. They rail against His authority. They don't want His laws, His rules. They don't want His gospel. They don't want His deliverance. They want to create for themselves their own gods. Because they are the sons of Adam. 
They all the daughters of Eve because in the very beginning God created a tree to test Adam and Eve's obedience and loyalty and faithfulness to Him. And that tree was called the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And He told them not to eat of that tree. That they would live by His instruction, His knowledge. They would live by His, his schooling of them and training of them. That they would not choose for themselves to go their own way and to develop their own knowledge. But they lived by the Lord's knowledge. And Satan tempted them. And they did fall. And ever since then, brothers and sisters, it's been this battle raging in the earth between two kingdoms. The kingdom of man and the kingdom of God. The kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Christ. The seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. That's it. If you want to understand what's going on around you today, there you go. That's the root. Why do the nations rage? Why do the emperors and the politicians and the kings and the princes and the mayors and the governors, why do they promote a vain thing? Why do they gather together to counsel Against the Lord. Hmm? Because they do not love him or want him or desire him. And they are of the evil one, the devil. That's their father. This morning, I'm going to simply take a few things. I'm going to open up the whole chapter to you. My, my goal is to take in the next 30 minutes, open, open up. I won't be able to say everything that I want to say. But can I stimulate you to meditate on it? Can I stimulate you to to spend some time this afternoon pondering the things that you've heard so that you can take this truth out of God's Word and really see application in your life? That's the goal. So we see that the chapter 2, at least the way I understand it, and through the help of, of old scholars, I believe this is a very faithful opening up of chapter 2 that the Lord through Habakkuk is showing us how the knowledge of the Lord does and will fill the earth even as the waters cover the sea. Point number one. Never waste a good teaching moment. Never waste a good teaching moment. Never waste a good spanking. Now, I think you know where I might be going with this. We know the, the issue. God's people are being chastened. If an earthly father who loves his children, the Bible says that what? Spare not the rod, right? Spoil the rod. Discipline your children. If you love them, what will you do? You will discipline them. The Father, Hebrews 10, the Father discipline those whom he loves. Don't waste a loving moment. God's people are coming under the chastening love of God. 
And it would be wrong and it would be offensive to God to be put in a situation or a circumstance, beloved, where you have truly the opportunity to examine your heart, to examine your mind, to examine your own participation in these crimes that the whole church is guilty of. I'll give you an example, and then we're going to read some verses. That that is, God's bringing this chastisement in order to bring correction, amendment. To what? To thoughts. Amend your thoughts. Amend your ideologies. Amend your presuppositions. Correct them. What does the Bible teach us? As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. The Bible tells us that a young man is known by his ways. And yet we often fall into the pitfall of our own deception when we say, well, you know, that's not my heart. That is, we can live cruel lives, you know, uh, blasphemous lives. We live immoral lives and we say, yeah, but I love God in my heart. (laughs) No, you don't. You just deceived yourself. You just lied. You just told a lie. Because the Scripture, the Holy Scripture, the Word of God, the very revelation of truth itself says that as a a child is known by his ways. Not by what he thinks, but what he does. Because what we think, right, comes out in action. You can say one thing and it completely not comport with how you live. How many times in cultures inside, you can say, you know, is there not a more religious group than the black culture? Right? Going to church. And I heard this in this week in this podcast and it's going to church and talking about the Lord and all these athletes talking about God blessing them, God moving them from one team to another while living with four different women. While raising 15 illegitimate children. There's a problem. And we do it, we we allow this all the time. This is the heart of what Habakkuk is having to address and deal with. We don't see ourselves the way God sees us. We've got to bring ourselves to, the, to, to this revelation of God. And we can't miss this moment, these crimes, these injustices, these cruelties in the, in the church of God. We have to ask ourselves, how did I participate in that? Did I speak out against it? Did I just go along with it? Well, that's a pastor's problem. That's a theologian's problem. No, that's the church's problem. You know why so many pastors can get away with so many wrong things? Because the people don't care. They just sit there. And they're like, I'll just go to church. I mean, they just sit there. They don't speak out. You know why the congregants can get away with so many things? Because the pastor doesn't want to lose his Congregation, right? I, I can tell you, people leaving the ministry all the time, I hear it and I hear it and I hear it, and God's held on to us, praise God. But there are so many pastors that I have personally talked to that says, you know, I just could never inspire God's people to actually do what God wanted them to do. It's too much. 
Wait a minute. We, the norm, brothers and sisters, is we go out and we live like the world, and we come in on Sunday, we have our religious moment, and we leave and we go back out to the world. That has become the norm. And we're now seeing a teachable, a teaching moment in our own nation. God is chastening us because he loves us. He wants us to to put off these wrong ideas and these wrong thoughts. And the idea that people are forsaking worship and going doing their own thing. There's nothing new there. There's nothing new. That's what unsaved people do. Unsaved people don't seek God. They don't seek the Lord. They seek convenience. Convenience. I've talked to businessmen that the only reason they are in church is so they can make contacts. So they can have contacts. They're not going to go to small churches. They go to big churches. Because the bigger churches provide more contacts. They literally said that to me. Without any shame. I'm going to give you a few verses to help us understand, brothers and sisters, that we find ourselves like Habakkuk in in a teachable moment. And we have to ask ourselves, are we going to withdraw into our own little cocoon and say, well, that's the Lord's business, that's those people's business, but to understand that collectively it affects all of us. Listen to Job 36.10. And he's talking of the Lord here. He says, He also opens their ear to instruction and commands that they turn from iniquity. That's what Job says. Job says, he, he, that, remember, you know, Job lived a trial, pretty hard one. And Job says, who's the Lord that turns the ear to instruction? That is, it's the Lord's who's instruction. He's talking about the Lord's sovereignty and helping us be truly instructed. How many times, brothers and sisters, we find ourselves or should find ourselves praying, say, Lord, as we face these challenging days, would you instruct me? Would you teach me? Would you help me be a better Christian? Would you help me be a better father? Would you help me guide my children better? Challenging days for young people, particularly in college. Challenging days for us as we go out into the workplace where all of these errors exist. And even among God's people, professing people. The word there, let me bring to your attention this word that Job uses for instruction. And now the Hebrew word carries three distinct ideas, this word for instruction. Number one, it means discipline. Instruction and discipline go together. Oftentimes, when we are when we discipline our children, what do we follow up the, uh, the discipline with? Instruction. We teach what they did wrong, and we teach why they don't need to do that, and what they need to do right. Right? There's instruction involved. Number two, it carries the idea of certainly training, training. Cultivation. We discipline. We get to that point where we must bring some corporal discipline or or some other form in order to what? Train them to see that this path is a not a good path. It's painful. 
to disobey. It's uncomfortable to disobey. If I disobey, I lose privileges. If I disobey and I continue to walk in, the, in, the, in my own ideas, it can be painful. It's going to hurt me. It's going to hurt my bottom. Okay? And of course, we've gotten away from a society that does not want any type of punishment, any type of chastisement, and look at the rise of the comfort and uh, a level and degree of sensitivity to offenses we've become. Look how one's gone down and the other one skyrocketed. That's not a coincidence. Because this correction and discipleship and discipline teaches responsibilities. We all have a moral responsibility to live within a moral context with our families and others. And when we, when we continually violate those rules and principles, guess what happens? There's the punishment. And it's uncomfortable and unpleasant. And it ought to be. It ought to be. Because if it's not, it doesn't have any effect. God's people are going into uh, exile. They're going to Babylon. They're going to lose their traditions. They're going to lose, quote, their culture. They're going to lose their worship. They're going in to live with pagans. They're going to taunt them. They're going to make fun of them. They're going to be the low-level citizens of that place, right? They're not going to hear high places, so to speak. It's uncomfortable. It's supposed to be. Because it's supposed to teach us why we're being chastised. Because we didn't we didn't assume the responsibility of praising and walking and obeying with obedience with God. You know, we talked about any cultures and societies, and it's not one over the other. It's not a color thing. Brothers and sisters, the churches are full of people that want to give lip service to God and go out and do whatever they want to do. And God's offended by it. Proverbs are some... Uh, so um, let me back up. Discipline, training, and the third aspect is warning. Instruction involves warning. Don't do these things. I'm teaching you. Listen, let's go. If, if we watch any crime shows, there's a thread involved in those. If we watch, you know, any of these, um, these reality shows like um, inter- Intervention, Right? Do not we see there constantly if you are insatiable in your appetites, if you cannot control your desires, what's going to happen? You're going to be addicted. You're going to come under addiction, and that addiction is going to enslave you, and then you're going to begin to do abnormal, absurd things to support the addiction because you're a slave to it. That, my friends, is a natural and moral law. And... The, the lie that we tell ourselves, the deception is this. It'll never happen to me. It won't happen to me. I'll get away with it. All right, I've got to move on. Psalm 50 and verse 17. Seeing God, you hate. This is God talking. Seeing you hate instruction and you cast my words behind you. That is, that's what we would be doing. If we walk through this providential national chastening of the Lord and we act as if it was nothing, you know what we're doing? The Lord is saying you hate instruction. Because we could even say this. Judgment begins with the house of the Lord. 
are we the cause of this chastening hand of God? But if we treat it as if it's nothing, he says, oh, you just cast my words behind you. Because you truly hate instruction. Proverbs 1 and verse 2, to know wisdom and instruction, to perceive words of understanding, to receive instruction of wisdom, wisdom, just, uh, justice, judgment, and equity. The fear of the Lord is the beginning. Verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. I could go further. I won't stop there. There's a teaching moment here. Habakkuk is certainly instructing, is being instructed. He's to learn as the body of, of, of God's covenant people are to learn what they are going to be instructed with and to grow thereby and to put these things off. So brothers and sisters, do not waste a good chastisement. Seek the Lord's face. Several applications here. What can I learn in a time of distress like the days we live in? What can I learn in, a, in, in, a, in, the, in the arena of all of these ideologies, these political agendas? I mean, can I see through them or do I get caught up in the hype? Where have I failed in my own personal responsibilities? Did I sit back in silence? while innocent people were abused? Did I address those sins with my sphere of responsibility? Do we talk about it in our families, in our homes, or do we allow our children to go their own way? I mean, listen, in this scheme and realm of ideas, everything has consequences. And you can't, I, I can't force my own children to adopt a biblical perspective, but I can, I can say, well, here's the outcome. Here's what will happen if you don't adopt this perspective. Things will not go well with you. It'll be hard. Because you cannot deny and reject the truth and it go well with you. And do I even understand the issues well enough to be useful? Point number two. National sins bring national judgments and disgraces. National sins bring national judgments and disgraces. Make no mistake about it. You can't murder 30 million unborn children and get off free from God's wrath. That's just the tip of the iceberg. There are many other crimes that this own nation is guilty of. But look, look with me at verse 6. Look, we have a series of woes here. And what are these woes? These woes are God's disapprovals. And I'm going to work through these quickly because I think they're self-explanatory. I'm going to make some comments to them hoping that you can take it further. Notice the first woe in verse 6. Woe to them practicing unwarranted gain. Woe to him that increases... What is not his? Nations do this. Nebuchadnezzar was doing this. What did Nebuchadnezzar realize? I'm stronger and more powerful than my neighbors. Let me go exploit them. Let me go exercise my military might and genius and let me invade these nations, these own sovereign lands, and let me take what they have worked for. 
Let me rob them of their own fruit of their own labor. Because I can. Just the accumulation of goods that do not belong to him. He just continued to amass his wealth and his power, so to speak, and his national footprint, if you will, in the, in the world by going in and dominating and taking advantage of those nations that could not stand up to him. Israel was one of them. They had no chance. They weren't even close to being the military power that he was. But nonetheless, God wasn't blessing them anyway because they, were, they wanted to be like the nations around them. So that's the first woe. What happens when a nation puts off honest industry? What happens when a nation, or any nation, right, begins to exploit weaker nations, take their resources from them? That's, that's the same thing that Nebuchadnezzar was doing. Notice if you go back and you read chapter 1, what was he doing? He was going in and in one sense, he was making slaves for himself. But what happens when these bigger, more powerful nations go in and they enslave other people? Now, they don't bring them over to your house. They leave them over there. But what they build and what they work for is taken by the bigger person, the bigger nation. Is that still not the same thing? That's just a different kind of slavery. That's just a different kind of theft. And yet God sees it. And God judges nations who are guilty of it. In fact, um, look there with me at verse 6. And he says, Will not all these take up a taunt, a song against him, even mockery and insinuations against him, and say, Woe to him who increases what is not his for how long and makes himself rich with loans? Will not your creditors rise up suddenly? Those who collect from you awaken. Indeed, you will become plunder for them because you have looted many nations. All the remainder of the peoples will loot you. Because of human bloodshed and violence done in the land to the town of all its you know what it, you know what it says here that this is God's judgment is finally one day those all collectively okay this small nation okay they can't do anything by themselves well this small nation can't do anything by itself but you know what collectively they get together and they go enough's enough when the bully when the bully. Is going to come, the bully's going to come to a day when the playground rises up, all of them collectively against him. And God says, that's the natural order of things. You've embittered people. You've enraged people. You are guilty. Nebuchadnezzar was guilty of going in and inciting revenge in those nations. They did not, they, look, they exploited their resources, they exploited their women. That's the reality. They exploited their children. And what does that do to a man? Incites him to anger. And he goes, I can't do anything about it, but I will raise up a heritage that will hate these people. And it did. And it happened to Nebuchadnezzar. And he is no more. 
verse 9. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to put his nest on high, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. We can see there in verse 9 that not only is he this one who goes to accumulate this um, wealth, but he covets it. He covets it. He desires it. He longs for it. He see, the nation says, why do they have it? We're better than they are. We deserve those things. So we're going to take it. That's covetousness. You know, if you're a covetous person, you cannot enjoy seeing others prosper. You can't. You're going to be like, why can't I have a new car? Why can't I get a raise? Why can't I? Why can't I? Why? That's the sign of a covetous heart. When we can't put our arm around our brothers and sisters and go, man, praise God, brother. Good for you. Man, I pray God will bless you ten more fold. Awesome. No, they don't do that. They sit back and they stand like, why can't that be mine? Beauty. Women, oh, they, oh, why does she have to be so beautiful? Why does he have to be so handsome, stunning? Why does everybody like him and not me? There's all kinds of ways to be covetous. Why, does it, why do people gravitate to him and not me? I'm just as charming. I'm just as this. I'm just as that. That's covetous. You are eat up with greed and covetousness. And when that happens, brothers and sisters, you can see the, you put your trust in these false securities. You put these trust in the false... Notice what he says. He says, you build up your nest, verse 9, to be delivered from the hand of calamity. You devise a shameful thing from your home you, you be cut by cutting off from many peoples. But you, what does he say? He says, not only you put your hand to these false securities, but you sin against yourself. You now, this is Nebuchadnezzar. He's not a Christian. He's not a God-fearer, so to speak. He's someone who lives in God's natural order. And God says, you sin against your own soul by coveting what others have. And you take it. You're destroying yourself. Now, that destruction don't come in a day, in a week. Often, it takes years. And by that time it comes, your heart's so hard. It's hard. You just can't even see it. You sin against your own soul. The third woe is verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and founds a town with violence. Is it not indeed from the Lord of hosts that people toil with fire and nations grow weary for nothing? In this one, in this particular woe, the things that I was struck with were those things that were just contrary to nature, contrary to human nature, contrary to uh, the nature in which we were created with. That is violence, violence and cruelty in this woe. These greedy, covetous, Powerful nations often are, are often are cruel and violent. Violent. Notice, builds a city with bloodshed. Founds a town on violence. Cruelty and violence. These are sins against what we might call human nature. These are sins that we all know is wrong. It's, we all know 
It's wrong to treat someone else with cruelty and violence. It pings our conscience, doesn't it? I can't spend a lot of time on these, but I'm hoping I'm stimulating you to go back and look at these things further. But these are contrary. These things are contrary, particularly cruelty and violence. How anti-God that is. God's not violent. Yeah, God has killed people. God brought a flood on the earth. That wasn't violent. What was he doing? He was rewarding violence. He, he preached for 125 years of repentance. I think that's a long time. He preached in Canaan 400 years before he evicted them out of the land. God is gracious. God is merciful. But God has a limit. Interestingly enough, look at the cruelty that that Judah was guilty of among its own inhabitants. Go back and read chapter 1 of Habakkuk. They were cruel to one another. They were violent toward one another. And what does God do? God raised up a violent person to come in and says, okay, you reap what you've sown. You've, you've sown cruelty. I'm going to show you cruelty. I'm going to reward your cruelty with greater cruelty. You sowed violence. I've got a violent person over here for you. And then he turns right around and judges Nebuchadnezzar for being violent and cruel because it's, against, it's, it's a sin against human nature. It's a sin against God. These are moral sins. Look at verse 15. Skip over verse 14. Woe to you who make your neighbors drink and mix in your venom even to make them drunk so that you look at their nakedness. You are filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup of the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. What I see here in this particular woe is the national promotion of lewd behavior. The national promotion of lewd behavior. A nation that promotes greed. A nation that promotes um, theft by its own thievery. A nation that promotes violence and cruelty. We're better than everybody else, so we deserve to take what we want. A nation that promotes Lewdness. And what's lewdness? Lewdness is sins that have a sexual connotation to them. The, the debauchery of drunkenness is there. That's its own sin. But notice what it's connected to. It's connected with nakedness. Advantage. Taking advantage of others. And I don't think, brothers and sisters, we can deny the sensual lewdness that our nation promotes. In fact, you're considered strange if you don't. If you're not immoral. Because everybody's sleeping with everybody. You don't? It's always couched in this surprise. The national lewdness of a nation brings God's judgments. The promotion of... 
the adultery, the 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 extra sexual uh, trysts of married couples. I've even read articles over the last week that address and deal with the idea that everybody cheats. Everybody cheats. Really? How can a nation stand if the idea in marriage is, well, everybody cheats? You must understand, my brothers and sisters, from a spiritual perspective, it's the erosion of people that fail to do what they promised to do for till death do us part. Faithfulness. For better or for worse. We can't keep basic promises. Right? We won't keep basic promises. And we see, well, well what, you know, that won't affect everybody. Look, it's, it does affect the nation. Because it it's an infection and it runs through the whole nation. When we hear of, of, of sexual scandals in the White House, in Congress, in the Senate, or in any local government, we have become so numb and used to it, we just shrug our shoulders and go, what do you expect? It has become normal. And those types of sins bring national judgments, not individual judgment, national judgment. We know why? Because we keep putting them in office. Lastly, last one, because I want to keep my promise and get to the end of it, but the last one is found in verse 19. Woe to him who says to a piece of wood, Awake, to a mute stone arise. Notice this phrase, and that is your teacher. Remember what we've been talking about? You either have God as your teacher or dumb idols. Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver and there is no breath at all inside. The breath has to do with speaking. You breathe to make words. Guess what the idol, the idol doesn't give guidance. The idol doesn't correct. The idol doesn't chasten. God does. Because He is true God and He loves us and He chastens us and He instructs us and He warns us and He disciplines. Idols don't do that. You see what God is doing? He's contrasting not only the inhabitants of the earth, those who, the kingdom of man versus the kingdom of God, but He's contrasting God's. Do you want this God? Is this what you want? Say, I'm God. But the Lord is in his temple, the holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Two things here. Number one, when the true God is not honored and not served, there will always be the promotion of irrationality. Always the promotion of irrationality. That's what the text. And that is your teacher? Behold, it's overlaid with gold. I mean, it looks good and silver. That's great. But it has no breath in it. It's irrational. These are, there are ideas and thoughts that are irrational. Andre, we talked about it last week. There was nothing and it exploded. 
There was absolutely nothing in the universe, but it blew up and created what we see today, or created the, 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 the life. Is that irrational? Yes. And look what stemmed out of Darwinism. When we have men say, on record, the only reason I cling to Darwinism is because I cannot and will not submit to God's authority. It's on record. These are scientists that say, I only cling to Darwinism because I will not have God rule over me. That's irrational. Secondly, it's offensive. It's an offensive insult to God. Ah, the Lord says, I'm God. I've shown these things to you. Why does the sun and moon continue to run its course? Why do the seasons, David, continue year after year, year after year? Why? Because God sits in heaven and orchestrates it. Why do we know certain ideologies lead to destruction of nations? Because God says they do. And God says this is not how you shall live. The Bible tells us that righteousness exalts a nation, but sin brings it low. Sin brings it low. I love y'all. I love y'all. These times come from the Lord. And as your pastor, I would fail you. I think about you young people more than anything. I would fail you if I did not call you to see the sins of your parents. That's me. That's all of us older people. Because we know better. You don't make the same mistakes we made. Don't be half-hearted Christians. Serve the Lord with gladness and joy and thanksgiving. Know that these times are teaching. They're teaching times. They're times for us to get together and huddle together and go, what are we going to learn from this? Because you know what? We've realized how... Worship can be taken away like that. You know, the NFL's just come back. They don't want any of their players going to church. They can, they can protest, but they can't go to church. When are God's true people going to say enough's enough? That this is a war. This is a cosmic war against the God of heaven. And there are spiritual forces at work to bring this nation down with all the other nations that have gone before it that have compromised. Now, there might be not much we can do about it. But what we can do is pray, repent, and seek to be obedient. And not take, not take for granted. Let's not take for granted what we've got. Let's cherish it. Let's promote it. Let's foster it among ourselves. Because what Habakkuk's going to teach us in chapter 3 is no matter what happens, I will serve the Lord.
Let's pray.